freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Well, you know, at this point, I'm beginning to think that maybe what I need to do is come up with one of those clever intros that always sounds the same every day. Because all I ever hear, it seems as if I'm always saying, I can't believe who we have on, on the podcast. But you know, I can't believe who we have on the podcast. It's Professor Robert George, who I have known through electronic communications for many years. We've been on a couple of calls together uh, through um, mutual work on the Federal Society. He was not at Princeton when I was at Princeton, but he has more than made up for it since then. And I welcome him to the podcast. This should be his podcast. This is his topic, the topic of free speech. Um, he, Robert George ha- is a political philosopher and was, has been very active in the battle for free speech, in particular on college campuses. And he and I have communicated about some of those developments recently. And now we're gonna do it in front of everybody else. Good morning, Professor George. Thank you for having me on the show, Ron. It's good to be with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, so we are, uh, you know, the intro pretty much set it up, set up where we are. Are things getting, have, have, do you think by virtue of the, the recession of the Trump persona from the public square for the moment, at least to some extent, that there's perhaps a little bit more oxygen in the speech environment on campus? Uh, No, uh, things have not gotten better. Uh, Our problems were not created by Donald Trump. Uh, They predate Donald Trump. I'm pretty sure pretty much all problems were created by Donald Trump. (laughs) The the intolerance of dissenting points of view, uh, the refusal to recognize that reasonable people of goodwill can disagree, even about profoundly important matters, the dogmatism, uh, the uh, uh, permission of orthodoxies to be established on campuses. Uh, all of this has been going on over a period now of some decades. Uh, it has gotten worse, uh, and, and, and certainly uh, the controversies about Donald Trump and uh, the Trump administration uh, added some uh, gasoline to the fire. For that, there was fault on both sides, by the way. But uh, uh, he didn't create the problems. They predated him. His uh, receding to the extent that he has receded uh, from uh, the public dialogue uh, has not made these problems go away or even significantly uh, lessen them. Uh, We still live in an age on campus of dogmatism, um, of an unwillingness of people to recognize that reasonable people of goodwill really can disagree about issues that they deeply care about, basic issues of morality, justice, human rights, the the common good. Uh, Too many people refuse to acknowledge their own fallibility. If you ask them, of course, are you fallible, they'll give the right answer and they'll say yes, but that's merely a notional sense of their fallibility. They don't really believe it. When it comes to the issues they really care about, they can't fathom the possibility that they could be wrong, which means that they are unwilling to be challenged, to be unsettled. Before we get to the macro on that. Yeah. How does that, is that something that you're seeing in the classroom? Uh, yes, although uh, in my own classroom, I've been and blessed to see really very little of it. I, I fear that part of that is self-selection. Yeah. Well, my students really do represent the spectrum uh, politically uh, from libertarians uh, to social conservatives, to old fashioned traditional Burkean conservatives, to old school liberals, uh, to left liberals, to radical left uh, people who wouldn't even accept the label liberal. While the spectrum is represented in my classes, students tend to take my classes 
the students who tend to take my classes are students who really do believe in free speech. They want to hear a different point of view. They wouldn't be in my class if they weren't interested in right. hearing different points of view. Of course, uh, your class is not a class about, uh, it's not a class that in which you're discussing current events as such. Yeah. I mean, that, that might come up in the course of hypotheticals, I imagine. I mean, what courses are you teaching right now? When, when, I, when you envision I, what? Yeah, I teach uh, constitutional interpretation. Uh, I teach civil liberties, which touches all the current hot button issues, ah, affirmative right. action, abortion, uh, death penalty, euthanasia, racial issues, uh, civil rights. Uh, we, we study the spectrum. But the students know when they walk into my classroom that although I'm a person with a point of view, I, I am an old fashioned conservative. Uh, they are going to hear competing points of view. If you if you look at my syllabus and they all see it in advance, uh, they see it before they have to make a final commitment whether to take my class. They see that the best possible readings representing different points of view, yes, my own, but also strongly critical of my point of view, are going to be on that reading list. They're going to be reading them. Whether they like them or not, they're going to be reading them. Uh, in my lectures, they're not going to hear me pontificate about my own point of view. They're going to hear me present the very best arguments for competing points of view. My conservative students, Ron, would be the first to tell you that it's probably rougher to be a conservative in Professor George's classes than to be a liberal. I'll give you a hard time if you're a liberal, but I'll give you an even harder time if you're a conservative. And that's well, I, yeah, I would expect psychological that. on my on my part. I want to make sure that conservative students have really reasoned their way to their position and that not just adopted it for emotional reasons or tribal reasons or simply to be uh, uh, contrarian. I, I believe there's a fundamental difference between education and indoctrination. And I think indoctrination, not only is it not education, it is the very antithesis of education. So I refuse to do it. I refuse to do it for my cause, and I'm appalled when anybody does it uh, for, their, uh, for their causes. I haven't done my job unless my students know exactly why reasonable people of goodwill on whatever the issue is can and do deeply disagree. That means they have to hear the best that has been thought and said on the competing sides of the issue. It's not my job to tell them what to think. It's just not. It's my job to help them to think more clearly, more deeply, more critically, including self-critically, and above all, for themselves. So much of our problem is that students allow other people to do their thinking for them. They let the New York Times do their thinking for them. MSNBC do their thinking. A few of the, the minority or conservatives sometimes let Fox News do too much of their thinking uh, for them. But uh, thinking is not something you can outsource. There's certain things you have to do for yourself, for yourselves. I mean, going to the bathroom, you, nobody can do that for you. You gotta do that for yourself, right? Same with thinking. You've got to do that for yourself. And that's my job as a teacher, to, to help students to think for themselves. So now to echo what you said a, a minute ago about how every, every person considers himself the reasonable person. Yeah. Um, a, a term that I was exposed to. Actually, I think it was the reasonable man in the 80s still. Uh, yeah, that's the old standard in tort law. <laughs> by, um, by James Ward Smith. Yes. Uh, in the... In the, in the the, in, the, in the philosophy department, the only philosophy course I took, philosophical foundations of democracy. Um, and everyone considers himself that reasonable person. And yet, as you say, they're not, they don't necessarily know what that entails. Now let's take it a step up. The approach that you just described for the classroom Obviously, if we asked any other member of the faculty or your department, are you teaching your students to think? They would obviously agree. Of course, I'm teaching them to think and not to be indoctrinated. Would they? Would they all, would they all acknowledge that? Or would they say, no, there are some things that my students understand are off the table? Most, not all. <laughs> would say that they're teaching their students to think and not imposing a particular point of view. And in some cases, that's true. There are other teachers who share my fundamental values and, and practice what they preach. And I'm, I'm glad for them. They're a blessing. But to anyone who tells me I'm a professor and I'm teaching my students how to think, not, not what to think, I'm empowering them to think for themselves, my first question is, let me see the syllabus. 
Let me see the reading list. You know, I, I, I'm from Missouri. I'm actually not. I'm from West Virginia, but I'm going to pretend to be from Missouri, the show me state. Show me. Show me the reading list. Now, I'm going to see on that reading list whether students are being presented by the with the best arguments for competing perspectives on the questions being addressed or not. And if I see the reading list and I see it's essentially one sided or the arguments for the position different from the professor's own position uh, are just straw man, straw man arguments, then I'm going to say you talk a good line, but you're not walking the walk. You're not practicing uh, what you preach. Now, if I see the syllabus and it's got the strongest possible arguments for the competing sides, then I want to say, God bless you. Keep at it. You're doing the Lord's own work here. You're teaching your students how to think and to think for themselves. And the great irony here is that when someone is, is not doing that job, either as a, as a teacher or not seeking that ability as a student, there's a great disservice being done because yeah. even for, you know, I read Lenin and I read Marx and therefore I can talk about them. And I understand the labor theory of value. And I understand Lenin's radical approach to undermining uh, conservative regimes. And it didn't break me. It made me stronger. Sure. And the irony is there seems to no longer be a feeling of a need to engage by one of these sides here. As you say, there's a, there, an iron curtain of orthodoxy, but what, you didn't say that, <laughs> but an iron curtain of orthodoxy has fallen down across, across the, across the you know, the, the body politic, and we can look in, but the other side isn't looking out at us. And I say us, I mean conservatives. I mean, there's no question, based on my experience, it, it is so hard to get a liberal to engage. Uh, you know, you know, I spent a lot of time on Twitter, but, you know, this is where, whatever the context is, it's hard to get the engagement and say, let's talk about the issues because we get into this, these sensitivities and these all these third rails and all these triggering concepts. Has, has there, from, I mean, you were very involved in the, um, Jonathan, is it Jonathan Katz? Joshua Katz. Joshua Katz uh, controversy, um, which I guess ended up, this is a year ago, of course, a better part of the year ago, right? Uh, he got through it. Yeah. You, maybe just free, free speech was respected. Princeton, in the end, uh, honored its own stated values, good values, the best values, uh, and it respected Joshua Katz's freedom of speech. The president of the university did not agree with what uh, Professor uh, Katz had said. Uh, I was far more sympathetic to what Professor Katz said, but our president disagreed with what Professor Katz said. He criticized Professor Katz for saying it, but he rightly took no action against Professor Katz uh, and took the position, the correct position, that Professor Katz was fully within his free speech rights under Princeton's own rules in stating his opinion and stating it as strongly as he did. Maybe you could just briefly, you know, tell listeners what, what, what happened with this what the controversy was. Uh, yes, uh, on uh, July 4th of, um, uh, I'm gonna get my year straight here, was it 2019 or 2020, 2019, I think. Uh, a group of uh, Princeton faculty, uh, together with some graduate students and some others, I believe, and it was a large group, I think the total number of signers was about 300, put out a statement that uh, uh, condemned uh, the university for allegedly uh, having systemic racism uh, and making a series of demands, um, uh, some of which were reasonable, uh, some of which uh, were unreasonable, uh, some of which, if implemented, would have been illegal. Uh, among the most outrageous of the demands was the demand for the creation of a committee at the university, a faculty committee, that would be charged to investigate the research of Princeton faculty members in order to uh, discover which Princeton faculty members were engaging in racist research. Racist research. Racist research as, as defined, racist as defined by this committee. Well, I mean, this is an outrageous assault 
on freedom of speech, on freedom of thought, uh, on the basic values and mission of, of, of the university. And of course, there was no way that President Eisberg was going to go along with any nonsense like that. Uh, no self-respecting academic, certainly no self-respecting president of an institution of higher learning uh, would, would do that. Well, there uh, are a lot of not, there, there, clearly there are a lot of non-self-respecting <laughs> yeah, well, that may be true. out there, and, and but but thank God Princeton, Princeton is not one of them just yet. Yeah. So, um, uh, in response to this, but this was a result. Okay, yes, in response to this, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah in, in response to this, um, people criticized uh, the the letter, the so-called July Fourth letter. Uh, I was one of the people who criticized it. Uh, pointing out that, I mean, demands for things like, you know, a committee to rove around investigating professors' research for racism was outrageous. So, um, uh, but the strongest criticism came from Joshua Katz, a very quiet, not conservative, uh, old school liberal uh, member of the classics faculty. Uh, Joshua describes himself uh, as a library rat, uh, an old fashioned uh, digger, a researcher. Uh, who digs around in ancient documents and uh, uh, ancient he's bit, Nonetheless, he acknowledges some, per, per se, by virtue of being in the classics department, there's a, a, re, a reactionary aspect to his very existence. And well, this is, of course, what uh, his critics said. What, what particularly outraged his critics is that not only did he fiercely criticize the uh, July 4th letter, in the course of criticizing it, he referred to a um, by then defunct student group who had occupied President Eisgruber's office a few years earlier, a group called the Black Justice League, a student group. Uh, Professor Katz referred to them as a local, uh, small local terrorist group, but making clear by the context that he was not accusing them of violence. He was using terrorism uh, to mean a group that tried to get its way by inducing fear in other, in other people, which is precisely what this group had done. Uh, it had attempted to get its way uh, when it was occupying Professor, uh, President Eisgruber's office, making demands, including some very unreasonable and outrageous demands. It was trying to get its way by in effect threatening anybody who saw things differently with being attacked on social media, being accused of racism, uh, having their future job prospects or educational opportunities uh, harmed uh, by being labeled, by being defamed as racists, uh, especially mistreating black critics of the Black Justice League. Uh, there was one young woman, uh, a member, member of our student body, who was outspokenly critical of the Black Justice League at the time, and they uh, harassed her. Uh, they uh, tried to defame her. Uh, they referred to her with vile names. They called her Aunt Jemima. Uh, and that, uh, Joshua, uh, rightly in my view, characterized as a kind of terrorism. It's, a, it's an attempt to rule by fear, uh, by making people so frightened of their uh, uh, futures uh, because of this defamation that they would cease and desist from any criticism of the Black Justice League and its uh, goals. So that is what got people's backs up at, at, at Joshua Katz, and including Professor Eisgruber, or, I'm sorry, President Eisgruber, who did severely criticize Professor Katz for referring to the Black Justice League as a uh, local small terrorist group. Uh, but he uh, rightly declined to take any action against uh, Professor Katz because Professor Katz's speech was protected speech under Princeton University's principles. In 2015, as you may know, uh, Ron, uh, the university faculty adopted and incorporated into our official university rules the University of Chicago free speech principles. We were the second institution after the University of Chicago itself to endorse these very robust protections for free speech. And we were the first institution to do so by faculty vote. In other words, it wasn't the trustees imposing this on us. We voted wow. ourselves to bind ourselves to these strong free speech principles. I'm, I'm rather proud of that. I'm proud of our faculty for doing Maybe that. Maybe I should have given 
should have we should rethink my refusal to participate in annual giving i'm hearing some good things here <laughs> there is this wonderful organization within princeton called the james madison program to which gifts can be uh, directed now I, i'm not i'm not encouraging you because i'm not authorized under the university's rules to to direct alumni to give to one thing or another but i'm just telling you that this wonderful organization of which i happen to be director and founder is there <laughs> not that i'm trying to influence you in any way just an information thing yes so so and and, and did it happen that this this july 8th 2020 letter the declaration of independence by a princeton professor that professor Castro was he, he just went further in being outspoken about this attempted intimidation than others like yourself who merely merely but who you know who criticized yeah he used stronger language I mean, he was genuinely outraged uh, and rightly so at uh, some of the ideas that were uh, being proposed not not just proposed demanded uh, in this uh, in this letter and what he was standing up for was not conservative anything he was not a conservative I, I, I suspect he sort of moved in a more conservative direction since but but here you have an example of an old-fashioned old-school liberal who really believed what liberals used to say that we believe in free speech we believe in freedom of thought we believe in a diversity of ideas being engaged we believe in a robust dialogue on campus when you were when you were a student years ago and when that uh, um, old school liberalism was the dominant uh, position on the faculty you had people like uh, Professor Stanley Katz in the in the uh, history department, uh, for example, who really stood up for those values. They practiced what they preached. Uh, they were clearly on the liberal side. You know, they would have voted for McGovern in 1972 and for Carter in 1976 and 1980, or supported Teddy Kennedy against Carter in the primaries of '76. There's no doubt where their political allegiances were. Right. But they believed that people who didn't share their allegiances had a right to speak and that their speaking contributed to the value of the dialogue, to the educational process on campus. I and mean, there's no question. Old-fashioned liberal sense of what universities have, uh, are really about that has been compromised, if not lost. Exactly. And I think especially at the top. Uh, and and the, if not at the presidential or dean level, certainly at the at, at the faculty level. Um, well, I mean, I think there are a lot of problems uh, in administrations now. For example, the- There's the, too much of them, first of yeah, all. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, this, this latest business of, uh, at many universities, mandating uh, so-called cultural competency training or diversity training or anti-racism anti uh, training, which simply amounts to indoctrination. These these are these are like Maoist re-education camps. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of nineteen eighties Princeton stories. One of one is, is hardly a story. Is that I I do recall that that when I was trying to put together a, a conservative student organization or a uh, a chapter of a conservative student organization, and, and I went up around campus putting up signs, they were torn down. No, torn down. This is 1982, 83. And I wasn't, sh I was disappointed, but I wasn't shocked. And I read, oh, my first freshman week when I showed up, or right after freshman week, Jerry Falwell came to speak. He spoke at Alexander Hall. And I really wanted to go in to hear what he had to say because he was this incredible ogre as he had been depicted. And I got into the hall and I saw that it was impossible to see him because a whole bunch of students had, I suppose they would call themselves liberals, had gotten in and they were, when he started to speak, they stood up to block him and turned their backs to him. This was my welcome to Princeton, was mm -hmm. this affirmative blocking out and no, no action was taken against them. And of course, what are you gonna do? Drag them out kicking and screaming, it's a university. But this already, sent a little bit of a set the tone and it didn't come at all from the faculty in those days i think that no one felt any degree of, of intimidation but on the other hand this sort of stuff was tolerated i'll also tell you talking about the deans and the indoctrination we went to i, I was an ra 
And we went to RA camp the week before and there was a new dean. It was basically the dean of, of what we would now call wokeness. <laughs> and we had to do an exercise where we went out to a field and the different RAs, she would call out everyone whose parents are legacies uh, stand there and everyone who's, whose parents went to, you know, and the idea was to help people understand what it's like to not be in the group, to be, to be left out. So they would have empathy for their RAs, or, I mean, for, the, for their advisees. You know, everyone who, you know, who went to a public school, everyone who went to a prep school. So then you would get this sense of otherness. And as she went through all these different groups, she said, everyone whose mother didn't go to college, stand there. And, and I was sort of waiting for her to say, just because I thought it was kind of a cute thing, everyone whose father didn't go to college. Because remember, this is the 80s. <laughs> so my parents' generation were people who were born in the 30s or early 40s. And women did not presumptively go to college. We grew up in the 40s and 50s. And as she was finishing up this exercise, I'm standing with this, my, just myself and this black girl waiting for her to talk about people whose, neither of their parents went to college. But this Dean, for all her consciousness raising, it didn't occur to her that there could be people in Princeton who's who was neither of whose parents had gone to college. And she thereby actually made us feel exactly the way she was trying to demonstrate that everybody else should feel. Because this is a, was a point of pride for me, was that I, as, a, as a child of, of an immigrant and an orphan, that I was the first person in my family to go to college. It was, it was virtue signaling circa 1984. Gosh. Back. Because that's, that's really what a reminder that this goes back a long way. That the roots of this go back um, go back a long way. Now, of course, if if she really wanted to know uh, what it's like to feel like an outsider, to be made to feel like an outsider on a college campus, she should should have just asked for asked the question, "Who's a conservative?" <laughs> because you're about to experience four years of being a complete outsider on the campus. Yeah, I mean, it, and 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 one was one 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 was, but but you know, in those days. Not every damn thing was political. Yeah. Not everything was political. So now let's broaden the scope of the of the discussion. So now we have. I'm very involved, as you may have picked up. You know, in issues involving corporate censorship, and I find it fascinating that so many libertarians have had so much difficulty understanding that if, if they maintain that freedom is an absolute value and liberty and choice are absolute values, that the censorship of free, of free speech and the, you know, the, the, the reduction of, of liberty and freedom is, should be regarded by them as offensive as if it were done by a government. Is this something that you discuss at all in your classes that, that, that what happens when you get to a regime where you know, more than was even the case in the past because there've always been corporate and other interests going back to you know, uh, East, you know, the, the East India Company, right? I mean, there've governments and, and, and big businesses have, have always been friendly, but here we are now in a world where people are being kicked off these platforms that most students in college consider to be an inalienable right to be on Twitter, an inalienable right to be on Instagram, an inalienable right to be on Facebook. Do they think those, uh, are they comfortable with that kind of censorship? Are they wrestling with this idea that, that, that and, a, and you know, freedom can be reduced and that it matters if freedom is reduced even if it's not done in a building that has columns in the front? Yes, I, uh, conservative students are very interested in tech censorship, censorship on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter and so forth. And of course, the entire conservative movement is wrestling with this. 
Uh, and part of the reason it's so challenging, I think, for conservatives is that conservatives are deeply, and I think rightly, invested in the distinction between the public and the private. And uh, deeply, and I think rightly, um, disposed to defend the market system uh, in which private enterprise has a certain immunity from uh, government control and regulation, not complete, certainly. Uh, reasonable uh, regulations are, are necessary and good, but where there is at least uh, presumptively freedom on the part of the private sector to pursue its legitimate business interests as it, as it sees fit. So having invested so deeply in those uh, ideas, we conservatives are now trying to figure out, well, what do we do in a situation where so much of the uh, availability of discussion space is under the control of private companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. What do we do when those companies, having gone ideological and having gone to a particular ideology, woke ideology, which is extremely hostile to conservative values, what do we do? Do we just say, well, there's nothing we can do about that. Nothing government can do about that. Uh, these are private companies doing capitalism. Uh, they're, they're doing what, what we've always said they're entitled to do. So, you know, we can't, we can't complain and certainly can't, uh, ask government to take any steps. Uh, but others within the conservative movement are saying, well, no, wait a minute. Uh, conservatism isn't libertarianism. Conservatives share with libertarians some important principles, but that doesn't mean that we are ideological or strict uh, uh, libertarians. And we do recognize that law and government have legitimate roles to play to uphold public health, safety, and morals. That has always been the conservative uh, uh, position. We don't want government intervening where the job can be done, that needs to be done, can be done by private initiative or by the institutions of uh, civil society. We believe in the principle of subsidiarity. That is a strict conservative uh, principle. And, and many times that leads us to the same conclusions that our libertarian cousins reach. But we're not libertarians and sometimes we don't reach the same conclusions. So I think, and I think the trend of my students thinking, I want them to think for themselves, but my sense from many conversations with students, conservative students, is that uh, they, they are open to trying to figure out what the reasonable regulation of tech to ensure robust free speech in our society now that so much is dependent on tech platforms. They're open to the possibility of reasonable regulation, but we need to debate and, and think hard about what count as reasonable regulations. Should operations like Facebook and, and, um, and Twitter be regarded as common carriers, uh, treated as trains were treated, passenger trains were treated in, in the old days and are really even treated today, where you know they've got to take all customers. I mean, unless somebody is drunk or violent or uh, 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 potentially contagious or what have you, uh, you got to take the guy. You can't say, nope, uh, we don't like your politics. We're not going to let you put you on the train from uh, from Hoboken to, to Manhattan. Uh, or we don't like you because you're Catholic or Jewish. Or we don't like you because uh, you uh, have an uh, Indian or Japanese ethnic uh, background. They can't do those things. Um, they're common carriers. Uh, they um, are public um, accommodations. And therefore, they've got to basically take all comers. Now, the same rule, a variant of that rule, could be applied to the big platforms. You can ban people for obscenity, for um, uh, intimidation, uh, threats. Uh, those shouldn't be allowed on, uh, on these platforms. But of course, those are unprotected categories of speech in our general constitutional law. The government can ban obscenity and does. The government can ban defamation. The, the government can ban uh, intimidation and threats uh, and, and, and so forth. So there may be a way forward here, but I, I think conservatives are here in the long run, not going to be inclined to stick with a strict public-private distinction and conclude that, well, since these companies are private, there's really nothing that can be done to require them to be fairer on free speech issues. No, and I, I think only really a very thin sliver of libertarians among those on the right are still taking that position. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, one friend of mine keeps reiterating a point, which is that if you think it's bad now, and I'll grant you, it's bad now. Do you want to put the regulation of content into the hands of the government? Well, what we found out last week uh, on Wednesday, and then it was reinforced on Thursday, was the president's spokesman admitted it's already doing that. Yeah. And if this was so over the top that even the American Civil Liberties Union finally this week <laughs> said, we, this just could be a problem. That's a gigantic breakthrough. God, God bless them. Even the American Civil Liberties Union, which uh, professes itself to be in favor of civil liberties, has finally come out in favor of civil liberties. How about that? Well, miracles. At least are one. At least one. <laughs> you know, Ron, uh, one of the great falsehoods, I think, that's widely uh, believed on the left is that um, big government is needed because we need a counterpoint or a counterweight uh, to big business. The truth of the matter is nobody loves big government more than big business. <laughs> big government and big business are in bed together every night of the week, every day of the week. Oh, but when you and I were, were coming into our political maturity, it was the case that captains of industry were, especially of a national scope, were more apt to be Republicans, more apt to, because it was understood that, that Republicans looked out more, you know, had more of a market orientation, were less supportive of unions, all the traditional things. Certainly now, anyone under that illusion, like you said, they're, 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 these are talking points from the 70s. Yeah, well, th those were the days when we had something closer to markets. <laughs> I, I'd well, love, that, and, that's the, and that's the other point. I'd right. love to get to a point where we actually do have markets. We had something closer to a market economy. Uh, uh, we live in an age of crony capitalism, as you know, Ron. And uh, crony capitalism is capitalism uh, for the left. Uh, it, the truth is, it's not capitalism, but at least it's not the market system uh, at all. And uh, as long as um, government can be used, big government can be used to increase um, barriers to entry, to upstart firms that can compete with the big boys who can afford to pay those costs. The big boys are going to be all in favor of Democrats and government regulation. I mean, and, they don't you know, care the government yeah. regulation is reasonable or not, so long as the government regulation provides a barrier, makes it hard, makes it expensive, too expensive, for somebody to compete with them. Our, our, the problem with, with our system is, is not that we value competition. It's that we don't value it enough and we don't have enough of it. If there were more competition in the tech sector, we would all be better off and we wouldn't be worrying about this free speech problem, by the way. Because for sure competition not. Will take care of it. We, we, have, we have been on an antitrust vacation yeah. for the last 30 years, minimum. Some would say far more than that. And acquisitions and mergers, as well as a host of anti-competitive conduct, are simply winked at. And I, one of the things I found extraordinary, and, and it, maybe it's beginning to break a little bit, is that just about just as every state has a little FTC acts, every state has its own anti-competitive conduct acts that mimic the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, to some extent. States have these powers. And there are states that are conservative. A couple of them are starting to stir a little bit. A state can do a, in, the, you know, in this system, can do a tremendous amount to throw a monkey wrench into the works of what is essentially a global yeah. uh, you know, en enterprise. It hasn't, it hasn't really happened either. And one of the things you, know, you, you, said, you mentioned about the natural inclination of conservatives toward respecting free, uh, uh, respecting private property. Some people are frequently asking me because of my involvement in these issues, wasn't there a Supreme Court case that suggested that company towns are like a public square? And I explained to them how the Supreme Court basically really retreated from that position. And when it was mentioned by Justice Thomas, 
in a dissent or a concurrence, I think it was Alito and Roberts, they were all over him like white on rice because conservatives don't want to go there. Conservatives mm-hmm. don't want to be in a world where we're going to start declaring massive uh, changes in the boundaries of what is private and what is public. And it seems like you, know, you, have, you do have this sort of be careful what you wish for thing and unintended consequences. If you say, I want it for big tech, I want to say that, that, that Twitter is the public square. Do you also want to say it for your private club? I was at, on campus at the very end of the era, the Sally Frank challenges. Oh, it was a all-male private clubs on campus. We don't have fraternity, at least we're not supposed to have fraternities. I think they function secretly, but uh, we do have what's called uh, eating clubs. That's what you're referring to, of course, Ron. And uh, uh, after co-education was introduced, when women uh, joined the undergraduate student body, they'd they'd been uh, in the graduate schools for some time, but when they joined the undergraduate student body, there was a lot of pressure uh, on the clubs to themselves go co-ed and admit uh, the women students. Uh, Some of them did, some of them held out, and then a woman named Sally Frank uh, brought a lawsuit uh, to try to force um, the the holdouts into line. And eventually she won. did. And the, 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 and one of the reasons that, that it took her so long to win was that there was a very cogent argument that although these clubs received a great deal of support from the university, they were independent privately owned clubs that happened to be adjacent to the, to the university, but they had their own endowments, their own buildings, their own management. And it came down to stuff like, well, the university phone system is integrated. Yeah, they were I mean, on the Centrex system. That's that. That was something that counted uh, as, as as making them part of Princeton University. I remember that. Yes, yeah, so that's a classic case of legal legal realism. The judges at this point had decided they knew where they wanted to go, and they were going. <laughs> and, and, and Princeton Princeton folded, and it was probably a politic thing to do at that point. But you know, I when I when I interviewed Michael Knowles a couple of weeks ago. He's insist, he has this theme in his writing that these little concessions are what end up getting us to where we are now. Because the, if the terms of debate are changed and the meanings of words are changed and private becomes public and standards become vague and then become non-existent, You've, you've moved the Overton window, as they say. You're, you're no longer, you're fighting at best rear guard battles and forget about standing up side history and afford history and yelling stop. You're already in the, you're already in the, in the, in the, in the hole. That's right. So do you think based on, you know, as we come into the last couple minutes here, try to get a big picture, you're on, you're on sort of the front lines on campus, oh, you, I do want to mention one more thing. You you have been involved in a an organization. This is the last thing that I talked about of faculty members who from across the country who have signed on to stand for the proposition of that old fashioned concept of free speech and free inquiry on campus. What's the latest on that? Thank you for mentioning it. Uh, Yes, I was one of the faculty members. It began with a group of faculty members and then expanded to faculty members from institutions across the country uh, that have created- It Princeton? It began at Princeton. Uh, We created an organization called the Academic Freedom Alliance. And the organization is essentially based on uh, the uh, uh, principle uh, from um, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. That is a commitment to treat an attack on one as an attack on all. What we had noticed, Ron, is that when students or faculty members or staff members at universities come under attack by these cancellation mobs, whether they're online or in person, and uh, the mob is demanding that the university take action against a person like Joshua Katz, for example, or any of countless other examples that I could cite, uh, despite the uh, free speech commitments that the colleges have formally made. When the cancellation mob comes after them, they put pressure on the administration. In most cases, the administration caves in, 
doesn't pay any attention to its own free speech commitments and take some disciplinary action up to and including firing or revoking tenure uh, of a faculty member. And then, and then it comes to me. And other faculty members just flee. You know, they're afraid of guilt by association. They don't defend the victim. Uh, and this is how basic civil liberties are eroded. So uh, we decided that uh, we needed a way to ensure that when an individual faculty member exercising his or her free speech rights uh, spoke up and came under attack, uh, has had his free speech or his her free speech rights uh, attacked, that the rest of us were committed to standing behind that person, standing up for that person, providing moral support. Uh, we also raised uh, money or continuing to raise money to make sure there's a legal defense fund. So it's not just moral support, it's financial support so that people have legal representation, have legal advice early on. They don't make mistakes that compromise their case against the university when the university has violated either its contractual obligations, this would be in the case of private as well as public universities toward faculty members in virtue of the commitments that uh, the universities make in their public materials to honor free speech, or in the case of public universities, of course, First Amendment uh, guarantees. Well, we've been just delighted with the success of our organization. There were 200 and something founding members, many of the most distinguished academics in the country. Uh, we've, that our, our, our numbers now have been more than doubled. At the moment, we're still an invitation-only organization. Uh, we, we're growing, uh, but we're trying to uh, grow in an ordered way. <laughs> so we're not yet a by-application organization, although we hope to get there. We're, we're chaired by my wonderful colleague, great defender of free speech, Keith Whittington. Uh, I'm on the governing committee, which is called the Academic Committee, together with uh, Keith and um, uh, seven other uh, academics from around the country. But uh, we're hoping uh, that the success that we've experienced so far uh, in defending faculty members around the country can be replicated many, many, many times uh, over, and that similar organizations will be created to protect the rights of students and the rights of um, uh, staff members at universities who are also subjected to all sorts of uh, violations of their of their rights. We're really here complementing the excellent work done by some other organizations, especially those devoted to um, legal defense of uh, uh, free speech on campus. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is a kind of a faculty partner of ours. They're, they're wonderful. They're not a membership organization. They're not an alliance in the way that we are. They're a public interest law firm, uh, but we, we share fundamental values with them and we cooperate with them. We remain in touch with them. They're a great organization. Uh, and there are others as well. So uh, thanks for but asking. That, well, I'm, I'm so glad I did because I don't think I spent the time I should have to understand this really novel approach you took Mm -hmm. of attack on one is an attack on, on all because what it does of course is it gives it gives its members the freedom to say I'm the freedom to not only say what what anyone would say in such a situation which is I'm not endorsing what he said I'm not not endorsing what he said I've got nothing to say <laughs> about what he said I'm just saying he should be allowed to say it and to keep his job and to not have to sell his house and all the things Exactly right. And we, it's a gigantic problem in, you know, in, the, in the, the spheres that I operate in, that, you know, one of my clients is Gavin McInnes, a, an outspoken entertainer, uh, an iconoclast, who was viciously deplatformed. And I represent him in a defamation action in oh. Alabama, which the judge has dealt with by not ruling on a motion to dismiss by the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, by, for two years. He, he hasn't ruled on it. Are, are you up against the New York Times against uh, uh, Sullivan uh, uh, actual malice standard? Is that the problem on your end? We don't have a problem because we, we, we believe and we've argued that, there is, that we readily demonstrated malice. He is oh, you can meet the standard? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially, certainly under Alabama law, uh, but even under New York law, especially after the Palin case a couple of years ago. Uh, but the, the, I think the judge maybe recognizes that too, which is why he hasn't ruled on it. Um, but what I found really disheartening was 
how few institutions in the conservative world. See, because Gavin founded the Proud Boys. He founded the Proud Boys. And I remember when he did that, I said, they're gonna characterize the Proud Boys as brown shirts. It's, he's not being, care, not being careful enough to avoid that. It's exactly what happens. Hmm. So he was deplatformed after a violent incident where Antifa guys um, and Proud Boys came to blows in New York. Only one side, of course, was, was prosecuted. But the, my point is nobody other than a, other relatively fringy personalities stood up for him. And I don't know if there's a way, the good thing about your organization is that those who are invited obviously are meeting certain criteria. What criteria? They're members of faculties, they're respected academics in known, in the world of social media in contrast or podcasting or whatever, you know, the, these fantastic millions of flowers that are blooming in the world of free speech outside of the corporate media. You don't have these objective standards. So, you know, in other words, you can say, we believe that there's an academic, an academic freedom principle at stake here. And that's why we're doing this. But everyone is on social media until they're not on social media. Yeah, so, right. so, so it's a little bit harder, but it does, I, a light bulb did go up over my head when I heard you explain it that way, because I, I, it would be great if we could find a way to make it safe to defend free speech without being called a Nazi lover. Or, oh, yeah. you know, all the, you know how many times this guy you're looking at right now has been called a Nazi because of the clients that he represents? This Orthodox Jewish guy I'm looking at. Yeah. I'm yeah. the worst. I, I keep failing the test for advanced Nazi too. I don't know why it is. <laughs> Professor George, fantastic having you on. I'm glad we got a chance to chat. This is I, this is in the category of you think I could get Professor George on the. So <laughs> it's really great to talk to you. I'm going to keep a closer eye on your um, on the faculty. Give me the name of it again. Association. See the, the Chronicle of Higher Education will let me read the line. Which uh, Ron, I should point out that one of the great things about the Academic Freedom Alliance is its ideological diversity. I mean, we represent the spectrum of political views, but all united in believing in the importance of free speech, especially on campus, because without free speech, you cannot prosecute the truth-seeking mission of universities. Um, I, I, of course, I'm one of the founding members, but so is my friend Cornell West, who's as far to the left as I am to the conservative side of the spectrum. And I, I would say we're pretty much evenly balanced between, um, between people on the left and people on the right. But these people who are on the left who are part of our organization are not the kind of people on the left who want to shut down other people's speech. These are old fashioned liberals who really do believe uh, that other people have a right to talk. Well, it's gonna be interesting to see if this reinvigoration of the ACLU on that issue. <laughs> I'll that believe that, it when I see it. <laughs> the, but the idea that, the, I mean, it's, just, it's really an historic because I, I actually really thought they had that free speech was no longer their interest. And it was, and that they fundamentally were focusing on, you know, new and exciting variations of, of you know, human rights that the founding yeah. fathers uh, certainly never envisioned. Thanks again. My pleasure. Again. Thank you. Soon, I hope. Thanks again. Bye bye now. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.